Amen. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you this morning. Uh, great to uh, be able to continue our series, our Advent series, The Promised One. And uh, I'm really just uh, grateful to be able to share this morning. There's things going on. The kids are rehearsing in the back, which is fantastic. Uh, we're excited about our Christmas service in a couple of weeks uh, on the 18th. So make sure that's in your calendars. We'll be there. It's going to be a, just a lot of fun together. And uh, as Steve mentioned, there's going to be a uh, kind of a light uh, potluck kind of thing uh, together. Uh, so we'll bring some finger food and enjoy that together. There's nothing like some fellowship, some food, some fun together, and celebrating Christmas. Amen? That's, I mean, like, what is better than that? That's fantastic. You can turn over to Isaiah chapter 9. We're just going to be reading uh, our theme verse there in a second. Um, as I mentioned, Steve kicked off last week our, uh, our Advent series called The Promised One, and the central premise of the series is this. It's that to receive the King, you must be prepared. If Jesus really is the King whose arrival we desire to celebrate at Christmas in this season, then we must do the work spiritually to prepare ourselves to receive him in the way that he deserves. And the mindset that Steve challenged us to carry with us throughout the season as we you know, see the preparations that the world around us is making, as we see the, uh, the, the trees that are being trimmed, as we see the Christmas music that's on the radio, as we see all the things around us, that we, also, that we would then see that and then be reminded and think, am I putting the same priority into preparing my heart spiritually? that the world is preparing physically and in its way for Christmas. So to help uh, our ministry to really embrace this focus, we're using this time together on Sunday morning to consider the titles that Isaiah gives in his prophecy about the coming Messiah. And uh, so we'll be in Isaiah 9 and verse 6. I hope you're there. Um, this is the titles that, that God's Messiah will be called the promised one who is arriving for us. Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 6, he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Steve talked last week about Jesus being the Wonderful Counselor. As Steve said, a wonder of an advisor. If we have questions about how to conduct our lives, Jesus has the answers. Our job is to ask, what would Jesus do? And then follow in his footsteps, leaving room for the Holy Spirit to work. Today, I'm going to focus on, on the next two titles that Isaiah gives there. Uh, after Wonderful Counselor, Isaiah says the coming Messiah will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And I want to approach this by asking three questions, okay? You can even write these down. These are three questions, which I think are great questions that we should ask whenever we are looking at a text in the Bible. Three questions that I think are, are really helpful as we, as we seek to apply the scriptures to our lives. And that's what, as followers of Jesus, that is what we're called to do, to look into the scriptures and then figure out how can we apply this to my life today? So here are the three questions. The first question this passage that I'm reading, what did this mean to its original audience? This passage that, I, that, I, that I'm reading here, not just, not just kind of what do I think looks good about it, 
But what did this mean to its original hearers? Second question, what does this passage mean in light of Jesus's life and ministry? And this is a question sometimes we can kind of skip over a little bit, but it's an important one to ask because we can have thoughts about a passage, but we need to first look at it through the light of Jesus in order to understand the Bible correctly. What does this passage mean in light of Jesus' life and ministry? And then the third one is maybe an obvious question, but how does this passage apply to my life today? It's not enough to just start to stop with the theory. We have to say, then what then does that mean for me? So we're going to look at the, the titles today. We're going to look at Jesus being called Mighty God and Everlasting Father. And we're going to ask those three questions. What did the passage mean to its original audience? What does it mean in light of Jesus's life and ministry? And then what, how does that apply to my life today? You with me? Three questions, three hours. Here we go. What did this passage mean to its original? No, no, no. We're not going too long today. Okay, so what, what, is, what did these titles mean to Isaiah's original audience? Well, the first question is, who was Isaiah's audience? Right? Isaiah lived, the prophet Isaiah, he lived in the second half of the 8th century BC. So this is about 700 years before Jesus was born. During his time, the kingdom of Israel was divided. The northern kingdom of Israel had abandoned covenant relationship with God, and the southern kingdom of Judah was going through cycles of kind of spiritual revival and decline, and then revival and decline. Isaiah challenged the people of Judah. He prophesied to the southern kingdom there, and he, and he challenged them, the people of Judah, to be faithful to God, to pursue justice toward the poor and the oppressed, and to live out lives that reflected who God was. He also prophesies about the hope that God has set before his people, really God's hope for what his kingdom would look like in the world. And the passage that we're reading here is part of that hope, right? where, where Isaiah is talking about the promised Messiah who's going to come and, and get things to, to be restored to what God's vision was at the beginning for the world. This Messiah would come and bring a new, a new kingdom. It says that the government would be on his shoulders. He would be called, as we're saying, looking, looking at today, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. So what would that have meant to a Jewish person back then? Well, having a mighty God in Jewish eyes was really one of the primary sources of their national sense of comfort and security. You, know, you see throughout the Old Testament, the comparisons of the power and the might and the strength of the Jewish God in relationship to the weakness and the ineffectiveness of the supposed gods of the world around them. You can just write these down, but in, in Deuteronomy 3, verse 24, Moses says this. He says, Sovereign Lord, you have begun to show to your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the deeds and mighty works you do? This was part of the people of Israel as they were coming out of, of Egypt, their sense of of protection and security came from that God could do things that no one else could do. In Psalm 89, verse 8, the writer says, Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. 
So a Messiah who would be called mighty God meant that he would be a champion of his people. He would have the power to defend them. It meant he could carry the banner of their nation and bring victory against any enemy that stood in their way. And I think this, you know, when you look at the, the title, the second piece, the title Everlasting Father, it's actually kind of a similar meaning. You know, a Jewish person at the time, really, and the people of Israel, you see throughout the scriptures, thought of God as being a father to them as a people. In Psalm 68, verse 4, it says, Sing to God, sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him, his name is the Lord. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. Later in Isaiah's prophecy, he says, and this is Isaiah 63, verse 16, he says, but you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, you, Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. So in the Jewish mind, a father is, is someone who defends and provides for his family. And so God was the perfect defender, the, the perfect provider for his people. And so this Messiah who was coming that would be the everlasting father, it meant that his provision for his people would never wear out, would never grow old. It meant that he would be with them through thick and thin. And even if we think about in relationship to last week, where Jesus is wearing this title of wonderful counselor, he has great advice, but it doesn't stop there. Jesus doesn't just know the way, he's actually with you on the way. He's the everlasting father who's always by your side. This Messiah will be with you in the difficulties, defending, providing, and meeting your needs. So to the ancient Jewish mind, this Messiah that's a mighty God, an everlasting father, he brings with him perfect security. He brings with him perfect security. He's a great champion. He's a strong defender. He's a tireless provider for his people. He would always be there, always at the ready to bring his people to victory. So now that we have a sense of what this would have meant to them, we can ask the second question. What does this passage mean? What do these titles mean in light of Jesus's life and ministry? You know, I've heard it said that Christians reading the Old Testament are like someone reading a detective story when they already know who did the crime. The story's still the same, but we have a much deeper understanding of what is important and how the pieces fit together along the way. And so, because of this, you know, when we, when we apply the Old Testament, or even just as we're looking through the scriptures in the Old Testament, we, we first, it's incredibly helpful, and I would say necessary, to ask how our understanding of the passage is really deepened by, under, by knowing the ending, right? We know the ending. We know who the person of God in the flesh really is. We have the perfect picture of God's heart in the person of Jesus, and so when we look back through the Old Testament, we, when we see through that lens, that's really the only way to see these passages correctly. So if we look at, if we know that this Messiah about whom Isaiah was prophesying, if we know that this was actually Jesus, that, the, that Jesus is the one who would be called mighty God and everlasting father, that this, that this Messiah actually arrived on the earth, that he did start a new kingdom, that he did provide perfect security for his people, and that he provided that through his sacrifice on the cross, I think this 
helps to deepen and even maybe change the way that we think about this passage for ourselves. Jesus is the great champion of his church. Jesus is our strong defender. Jesus is the tireless provider for us. Jesus is always there, always at the ready, and his resurrection will bring us to victory. In 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 55, Paul writes this about Jesus. He says, well, he says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the truth for our lives, that because of Jesus, we have the victory over death, over sin, over anything that could stand in our way. But I think we have to see how Jesus accomplished this victory for us. Right? Like how did Jesus actually do this work on our behalf? Jesus fulfilled all these promises about the coming Messiah, but he didn't actually come the way that the world expected. He carried the banner for his people, not by conquering his enemies with force, but through meekness and surrender. He guarded his people, not with powerful weapons, the way that all of his initial followers expected that he would. He guarded them with the unconquerable barrier of his own sacrifice. Our mighty champion took off his crown, set aside his robe, and gave us protection by embracing his own vulnerability. And this is the paradox of Jesus' life that the promised king brings perfect security through perfect surrender. That Jesus brings us perfect security. He brings us everything that Isaiah promised he would, but not in the way you would have expected. Not by conquering all the enemies, not by bringing them low and you know, trampling on them for all the world to see, but actually by letting himself be trampled by them. And in doing that, giving us eternal protection. It's a paradox. But this brings us to the third question. How does this apply to our lives today? What does it mean for us that the king that we're preparing to receive gave us perfect security through his perfect surrender? I think one of the things that it means is that receiving him properly, it means joining Jesus in the paradox of unshakable vulnerability. And I'll just repeat that, that it means that we have to join Jesus in a paradox of unshakable vulnerability. We think of, of strength as being something that we are invulnerable. If I am strong, then no one can hurt me. But Jesus says, no, no, Strength is actually the opposite. Strength is that I keep making myself vulnerable to the abuse of those around me. Continuing to love. I continue to serve, even when it's not appreciated. I continue to give, even when people don't give back. Unshakable in our vulnerability. That's who our mighty God is. That's who our everlasting Father is. Unwavering in our meekness in our gentleness, in our love for others, in our willingness to sacrifice ourselves. And, you know, the, the reason that it, I think the picture is so powerful is because 
if there is no mighty God that is there beside us, if there's no everlasting Father that's coming to our aid, then I think focusing on our own self-preservation makes incredible sense. Because if no one else is going to take care of you, then you better take care of yourself. But Jesus had this incredible trust in his Father. He, had this, he knew that there was perfect security for him, and so he was willing to tolerate the difficulties of the world and not protect himself out of his trust for his father. This is how, you know, he, he spoke about this to his followers who were understandably afraid at, at, at this idea. In Matthew 6 and verse 31, Jesus is talking to his followers and they're, and they're clearly kind of uh, challenged by the life that he's calling them to imitate. And he says, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. He says, yes, uh, I mean, if God isn't there, if you're a pagan, if you just believe it's just up to me, of course you have to run after your own protection. But if we trust in God, if we, if we have a, a mighty God, an everlasting Father, then we're free to give ourselves in love to the world, trusting that God will take care of us. And so this is the challenge, I think, for each of us today, as we think about the promised one, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, this one whose radical vulnerability we're celebrating at Christmas, that Jesus didn't come as the conquering king, but he came as a baby in the most vulnerable place of all. My challenge is that we would reflect on the perfect security that his sacrifice gave us and then join him in perfect surrender. Join him in that paradox of unshakable vulnerability. So, and I'm going to wrap things up here in just a sec. We're going to keep it nice and quick, as I promised you. I'm going to give you some ideas. What might that look like? What might it look like? What might it look like to embrace this perfect surrender in the world, an unshakable vulnerability in our, in our attitude towards those around us. It might look like this season embracing hospitality to the neighbors and those in need around us. Jesus did that. He fed the poor. He was scorned by the religious leaders of his day for crossing boundaries to eat and to share fellowship with those who are overlooked or unwanted by the world around them. Is there an outcast at your work or in your neighborhood? An outcast family that others overlook, maybe at your kid's school? Would you be willing to have them over for dinner? To take them a meal? To share fellowship with them? It's not going to happen if we don't make an effort. It doesn't just happen by accident. If we just go the way that everyone else goes, then just like everyone else, we'll continue to overlook the people around us. But Jesus made an effort to embrace vulnerability by going to those people and serving them. It might look like service in the ministry here. You know, it's been been really encouraging this fall as we've been kind of coming out of COVID, seeing things get going again and the events going again. And I mean, I was here, you know, this morning with the, the worship team, we're warming up and there is a flurry of activity here. 
before, you know, almost anyone <laughs> arrives. If you're here at nine, it is just, you know, there are chairs and tables and, you know, these guys are plugging in, you know, countless, I mean, this doesn't just happen, right? Like, I don't know how all these wires fit together, but there's all this that's going on. There's stuff, you know, tables getting set up in the back, which is amazing that, you know, people are getting ready things, you know, back for the kids' classes and all of that. There's a lot of activity, but honestly, I really appreciate it. I mean, it makes a difference, doesn't it? All the work that people are doing so that we can honor God in a great way when we get together. And it's not just on Sundays, right? There's all kinds of things that happen throughout the week. But, you know, and it's been really encouraging seeing all of the, the events that we're planning for next year, right? The marriage retreat is getting going again. We got, you know, the idea of the lock-in coming back. And, and we're going to have basically a, a, a full roster of events in 2023. It's going to be fantastic. But in order for these events to be really great and to honor God, we need help, right? We need help putting them together and doing things. And, you know, I was even thinking, maybe it was last week, even just people who, some people are great at just, well, just, you know, taking pictures at the event and making sure that we kind of memorialize them and can reflect on them. And maybe it's just, you know, hosting something or bringing some food or setting something up or just being the person who says, hey, can I help? can I just be on the team that helps to plan this? And, you know, if there's someone I need to call or, a, you know, uh, a facility that I can just talk with, like, you know, lean on me. I'm happy to do that. There's all kinds of ways to serve. The church, most fundamentally, is a community that serves each other. That's what we are. Right? We're a community that serves each other. We each have a gift. And we were created to give that gift to each other in the church community unshakable vulnerability extends itself and gives that gift. Even when people may not appreciate it as much as you would like, even when you might be overlooked, it keeps extending and giving. One of the things that might look like is committing to deepening your relationships with brothers and sisters in your life, embracing vulnerability by letting people into the broken areas that don't look nice. The areas that, I mean, we all have areas of our house. Well, this is certainly true for us. There are the areas of your house when people come over that people see. And then there's the other areas. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, well, just don't open that door. Because that's where I stuck all the stuff so that this would look so nice. Can you guys relate to that at all? Because, man, there's not enough time to put everything away. So it's just easier to just stick it in the, you know, the place. But the fact is that that's true, not just in our houses. That's true in our lives as well, right? That there's always areas of our lives that it's tempting to just kind of stuff in the side and hope that no one looks. But unshakable vulnerability says, you know what? I'm going to open that box, right? I'm going to go there with the relationships in my life. If, if my marriage is, is, you know, going through a rough patch and, hey, COVID was tough for a lot of us in a lot of our marriages. Like 2020, I would say, not a great year for my and Lauren's marriage. I think it was hard. That was one of the hardest years that we've had. All of our schedules are changing. We're trying to figure things out. New, you know, new rhythms, kids at home, Lauren trying to homeschool, which that was a, that was a difficult time for all of us. And, and, through, and, then, and then the isolation that kind of comes with that and not having people in your life and not having the, you know, the church around us. That was a hard year. Maybe it was hard for you too. Maybe this is a hard year for you. But pulling on people and saying, hey, can I get some help with this? Can we just get together and talk? 
Maybe it's with your kids. Maybe it's with the financial situation in your life. Unshakable vulnerability is willing to open the box, bring others in, embrace deeper relationships with those around us. I'll give you one more because everything else was quick. So I figure I can just, I'm just going to keep going. It might look like embracing an attitude of surrender in your approach to prayer. You know, this is an area where I think, you know, we talk about vulnerability. Prayer is in so many ways the ultimate act of vulnerability. We go to God and we bear our hearts and we acknowledge that he is God and we are not. And that actually the best thing that I can do with my time is not to continue to try to work on my own problems, not try to fix them myself, but to go to him and say, God, you are the God of the universe. I'm going to give this to you. And so every day, each of us faces a choice about whether we approach the opportunities and the problems with our in our lives on our own strength, acting as if we are the mighty God, we are the everlasting Father, or whether we embrace vulnerability like Jesus did. We go to our Father and we say, God, I'm going to let you handle this. And so I think an attitude of vulnerability is, is reflected very clearly in our approach to prayer. Are we praying deeply and passionately, constantly? Or are we distracted, half-hearted, our mind wandering, giving, you know, maybe a little bit, but not our whole hearts? Consider, over the next few weeks, making this a strength in your life as you embrace Jesus' heart of surrender. You know, there are countless other ways, right? You can find all kinds of ways that you can, you can uh, apply this, I, I think. And I would just ask you, you know, consider where you hear God calling you. Maybe it's something that I mentioned here. Maybe there's something else that you feel like God is calling you to, to embrace. But I would just say, as, as I close here, <clears throat> the world around us is playing the music. They're trimming the trees. They're buying the gifts to prepare for Christmas. But I hope that our community that we would be people who prepare for the arrival of the promised one by reflecting on the perfect security that Jesus, our mighty God, our everlasting father, has brought to our lives. And that then we would imitate his attitude of perfect surrender. That just as Jesus achieved those things for us through meekness and humility, that we also would embrace unshakable vulnerability that loves and serves and brings light to the world around us. Amen.